Um, Billy laid out an outline for chapters 19 through 40 for us, um, and he, he preached on the last. He preached on the first one last week. Does anyone remember what that was? He wants a people. God desires a people, um, and th- and that's a family. That's a relational thing. Uh, that's a we do it this way around here kind of thing. Um, what were the other two? What are number two and number three? He wants to dwell with his people. He wants to dwell with his people among them. And then number three? That is part of them being a people. Yeah, he's got a place for them. He has an inheritance prepared for them. Uh, and he wants, so he's, God wants a people. He wants to dwell among them. And he wants to bring them into a place that he's preparing for them and give them an inheritance, give them a land. So we're going to cover number two tonight. Um, <clears throat> I'm not going to belabor recapping last week's. Um, it's online. You can go listen to it. I'm pretty sure that 100% of us have easy Internet access, uh, maybe 99% to 100%, so those are pretty good. Uh, so I'm not, going to, I'm not going to recap that. Uh, if you don't know how to get the sermons or listen to them, let me know. Um, so we'll move on to the dwelling place of God. Uh, the primary section of Scripture that we're covering tonight is Exodus 25 through 40. 25 through 40. Uh, at this juncture, Moses has been called up to the mountain. Um, he's already received some laws. And in chapter 25, God begins to reveal to Moses the instructions for the tabernacle. The tabernacle was to be the place where God would come and dwell among his people. Uh, so that's the primary section that we're going to cover. But I have some other texts that I want to read uh, in order to frame the discussion tonight. Um, and let me say that I'm not going to give... There are a lot of great teachings about the tabernacle and the way it's set up and the different furnishings and what they represent. I'm not going to walk through that tonight. Um, That's better done by someone more qualified than me in those things. Uh, And also, uh, I think a lot of us have heard those those kinds of teachings before. Um, They're good teachings. Uh, But I am going to give tonight an admonition, uh, which is actually, it's a warning. Uh, And I'm going to give an exhortation uh, that has to do with the dwelling place of God. As I was preparing, I was wondering how to talk about the dwelling place of God. I mean, it's a major theme running all the way through Scripture. And what I'm going to share with you tonight just kind of hit me. Just one relatively simple point. It just hit me this morning. And so I feel that we need to hear this. Um, not, a, not in a condemning way, but in a very sober way um, about the, the house of God. So we're going to dive in. Um, let, me read these, uh, let me read these passages they're a little bit long, but uh, I really want to do, let the word do the bulk of the heavy lifting tonight. So Acts 7. You may know what happens in Acts 7. Stephen Williams, Stephen Williams should know what happens in Acts 7. Anybody not named Stephen? No? Hint. It's the first Christian martyr. It's the first Christian martyr, and he's preaching a sermon about the dwelling place of God <laughs> to the stewards of the, to the housekeepers of God 
at that time. And he's saying, y'all don't get it. You just don't see. Um, it recaps, it's actually a great little Cliff's Notes on the Old Testament. There are a few of those in the New Testament where someone is giving a speech or something and they recap all the history, and I love those. Because it's like, okay, if a New Testament writer is pulling out the, the most important nuggets, then those are the most important nuggets. Um, so he's talking about Moses. This is Stephen giving a, giving a speech to the Jewish leadership. He's talking about Moses, and we'll pick up in verse uh, 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Or do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Um, let me see. Let's see. Chapter, uh, let's see. I lost my place. Let's go to verse 36. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god, Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Okay, next I'd like to read First Peter chapter 2. As I do, let me silence this. Who just texted me? 
call is coming from inside the house. Um, thanks, Greg. Greg just texted me. I won't, I won't read it. It's okay. Because his face is beet red. <laughs> Everybody at First Peter chapter 2? Because I'm not. Where is First Peter? It's after James. Are we ready? First Peter chapter 2. Verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would inspire your word tonight, that it would be clear and resounding in our hearts tonight. That you would show us uh, the truth about your dwelling place. That you would change us uh, by us coming into contact with the truth in your word, Lord. And that we would be different. In Jesus' name, amen. So the primary thing I want to highlight tonight uh, is the warning, and it is a warning, that we need to heed from 1 Corinthians 10. Um, And it's the warning that this section of Scripture calls to our attention. So if you want to go back to Exodus. The most striking thing to me in this section, uh, and I don't know if you're the same way, but it's, it's chapter 32, uh, where the people of Israel get anxious about Moses' extended absence on Mount Sinai, and they begin to sense a need that every human is born with, the need to worship. And so they compile their precious metals and compel Aaron, who is all too complicit, to fashion a golden calf, to which they offer sacrifices and to which, most blasphemously, they attribute their deliverance from Egypt. They said, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt, this golden cow. And they make merry around the golden calf with much revelry until Moses rallies the faithful and strikes down 3,000 of the idolaters. And what's striking about this, beyond the unfathomable blasphemy of it 
is that it occurs at exactly the same time that God is instructing Moses how to build the tabernacle in which God himself was to visit his people, to instruct them in his ways, and around which the people were to offer their sacrifices and worship as instructed by the Lord. And I want to dive into this more because there is an admonition that we need to hear. Uh, But I want to set a little bit of a backdrop. And I'm going to just talk about the dwelling place of God, and I'll tell you when I'm done setting the backdrop. Okay, so here's the backdrop. Um, I want to go back to our study, uh, just call your mind back to our study of the creation story, Genesis 1 and 2. And you remember that we talked a lot about God forming the universe and the earth, the land and the seas, and then filling them with abundant life. God forming and filling. And how? By speaking his words that created from nothing. Life-giving words. And so in Genesis, we get our first glimpse of God's desire to relate to a people. And God's desire to dwell among his people. And his desire to give his people a place and an inheritance. And in fact, the Garden of Eden is really the prototype of the tabernacle and the temple. And that's really a fascinating and fruitful study as well. Um, But as the writer of Hebrews says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. But if we carry this understanding with us um, into Exodus, into this section of Scripture, his laws and instructions make much more sense. We're not reading the nitpicky ramblings of a stingy God. We are hearing the creator of the universe once more after much silence, speak life-giving words into his creation in infinite wisdom in order to bring about his purpose in the earth, to dwell among his people in a place that he was preparing for them. But even still, as you approach this section of Scripture, you wonder why God would care so much about the length of the poles that carry the ark or the number of loops on the curtains or the particular blend of spices used in the anointing oil. (laughs) That's one of my favorites. But one way of answering that question is by asking another one. How detailed did God get when he created the world originally? When he created his dwelling place originally? Can I get an amen from the scientists among us? Compared to that level of complexity... The Sinai tabernacle looks kind of like a preschool crayon drawing next to Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, right? Make this curtain, put the loops in the thing. Compared to the human body, you know, compared to the complexity of of biology, of plant life, of cells. Kenton is just getting so excited over here. (laughs) But if we trace this idea of the dwelling place of God through the whole Bible... It's, it's at every page. We can see that Eden was the dwelling place of God. The tabernacle of Moses here is the dwelling place of God. The temple of Solomon is the dwelling place of God. The prophet Ezekiel foretells of an even more glorious temple than that of Solomon's. But in all of these symbolic representations of the dwelling place of God, we only get a glimpse of the reality of heaven. The true tabernacle, as we turn over into the New Testament 
The meeting place of God with his people is in the person of Jesus Christ. As John's gospel says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. And then by extension, we, as we read in in 1 Peter, the body of Christ, we're the dwelling place of God in the earth. He's building us together to live among us. And so in comparison with the unimaginable glory of the heavenly dwelling place of God in eternity, these instructions here in Exodus are actually pretty basic. Right? Compared with the glory that is to be revealed, what's 50 rings on a curtain? You know? But beyond that, what I see in the fine-grained nature of these instructions is God leaving minimal room for an immature people to have to come up with their own ideas of how God's house should look and operate. As Billy would say, hello. Yes, God is going to ask the people to contribute toward the sanctuary, to work with their hands in constructing it. He's even going to anoint a few talented architects and artists to bring all of it to life. But the plans and the pattern belong only to God and come directly from his mouth. And his people are to obey the pattern. And in that, the beautiful house of the Lord will rise, and the Lord himself will descend to dwell among his people in glory. Okay, the backdrop is over. So in Exodus 32, in the golden calf, it sticks out like a sore thumb, this story. It's right between the giving of the instructions and the fulfilling of them. Utter blasphemy. And I become convinced that the story of the golden calf is a supreme example for us in the last days of how not to build churches. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 10, as we've said, as one of the failures, one of the chief failures of the people of Israel. But it's not just a story of how some dumb Israelites broke like 11 of the Ten Commandments right after they got them, okay? Um, It's a warning to us about a way that we are quite likely to be tempted. It's a warning to us about a way that we are quite likely to be tempted. And honestly, it's an illustration of the way many of us have at some point Failed already to a degree. It's easy to look at this and think, what in the world were they thinking? You couldn't wait a few more days? Then you got to go all full-out golden calf? But then God comes and strips away our hypocrisy. It's just a hypocrisy that's fed by our distance from them. And he reveals to us the hideous monstrosities that we have concocted and then plastered his holy name on. The sin here is the sin of idolatry, which at its essence has to do with worshiping a created thing or a product of human hands. Rather than worshiping the uncreated God, who is responsible for the existence of creation and is superior to it in every way. 
And this happens right in the middle of God's instructions on how to set up his house. What is the lesson here? What's the warning? Is it starting to crystallize for you? Did you realize when you were reading that one thing that was missing from the tabernacle was any sort of figure or form of God? And I don't want to trouble the, uh, the waters of iconography and our brethren that use icons in worship. I'm not, I'm not speaking to that. There is no representation of God himself in the tabernacle. And the closest it gets is just a seat for him when he shows up. <laughs> That's it. And it all points to that. And this was radically different from the religious system that the Israelites had been steeped in for 400 years. In fact, God had just finished, as we've seen, systematically triumphing over the idols of Egypt and revealing himself as the God who created the heavens and the earth. I'm more than these gods. The land was full of graven images of gods who represented natural forces. But God was saying, I am no mere natural force. Everything you can see exists because I spoke it so. In other words, idolatry is when man creates God in the image of created things. In God's plan for the tabernacle, there was room for none of this. So we can clearly see the blasphemy in creating a calf out of the materials that were to be used for the tabernacle. And even calling the calf Yahweh, saying, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. But again, do we really heed the lesson here? The warning in our own lives. There's a quote that floats around, and I'm sure you've heard it at some point on a blog or something. I don't know exactly where it comes from. Um, But apparently a Christian from China once visited America. And who knows? This is one of these anonymous like chain email quotes. But it it speaks to what I'm saying. Toward the end of his tour, when someone asked what he thought about the church in America, he said, I'm amazed at how much the church in America can accomplish without the Holy Spirit. Does anyone know who said that? I don't know who it was. Could have just been a brilliant chain email starter. Who knows? That's the lesson. That's the chain email version of the lesson tonight. Because I'm not so worried about us freaking out and fashioning an idol to worship. I worry about us being Aaron in the story. Accommodating the masses in their demands for something man-made and familiar to worship. I worry about us forming the church more out of societal pressures and cultural pressures then from a long time on the mountain, beholding the pattern. I worry about us so quickly embracing patterns of relationship and lifestyles that seem much more expedient and reasonable in our mission than waiting around for the holy men and elders to open the tablets of God's wisdom for us and show us the way to walk in. 
And I think I'm speaking primarily to those among us who do not yet make decisions about the way to form our community, but who will very soon. And here's the warning. Everything built according to human understanding will burn up in the last day. Some of you will be saved, but just like a small little nugget of you. Like maybe the size of a musket ball. That's all the precious metal that you have. And everything else is grand ideas and neat plans about doing ministry and building church. But here's the good news. We have the pattern. It's there for us to go find. We have seen that true tabernacle in the word become flesh. And we know what life should look like. And praise the Lord, God has given us anointed and skilled architects to help us carry out the plans. And not only that, but the neat little, the room with the little seat behind the curtain where God would meet with a guy once a year. That curtain has been torn wide open. And the Holy Spirit himself is among us to build us together into a dwelling place for God. And you know he won't get it wrong. The good news is that everything we need is available to us in overly abundant measures. So the bottom line for us is that the pattern now in the church is primarily about relationship. Knowing the pattern means knowing how God wants us to relate to each other. How he wants us to love each other. When our hearts are set on this, the church of God is established in the earth. Very simply. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. For there the Lord has commanded blessing. Life forevermore. But you have to realize, the pattern is highly detailed. And there's really not much that's up for discussion in the plans and in the pattern. There are little nuances of your personality and self-centeredness that aren't in the plan. And that God has to chip away at in each and every relationship in our lives. And as Dan likes to point out, I love it, every command of God is in some way relational. That's the whole point of this. You have too many loops on your curtain. <laughs> your spice blend is way off. Your poles are the wrong length. God is getting into each of our lives, and he is meticulously shaping us in our hearts and in our motives to become part of his dwelling place according to his plan. And if that kind of thing is not happening in your life, you might not be at church. You might not be in the house of God. You might be at a party worshiping a cow that everyone is calling Jesus. Just like the rest of all the idolaters. I believe, no, I don't believe, I know, we need a new generation in this church, to rise up and say, yes, I will seek the pattern. I will give myself to understand the way God wants his house built 
And I will yield myself to be shaped by God to be just right. All the forces of our culture, the idolatrous masses, are more persuasive and demanding than ever. Make for us gods. Make for us something we know and like. If you have a smartphone, they're literally in your pocket. The masses of idolaters clamoring for man-made gods. You need to hear from God before anything else. You need to be on the mountain. You need to wait until God tells us how he wants it. You need to search the scripture and see what it says about the way we should live our lives together so that the Holy Spirit can build us together into a dwelling place for God. I want to open the altar tonight. Not that it's anything special, right? The eternal realities are way beyond this piece of wood and carpet. Right? That's, the, that's what we know. But I want to open the altar. Uh, if you want to demonstrate just publicly in the, in the community of the people of God that you're willing to allow the creative and life-giving word of God to shape your life and give you to be a part of a people who is being built together as a dwelling place for God. So if we could get the worship team up here. I don't want to sing, uh, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. That's not the right response song here. The right response song here is, Give us clean hands and give us pure hearts. Can we sing that one? As if you were going to say no after that. So if you want to reiterate that you are not going to let the idolatry of this world convince you to change the plans, convince you to take what is meant for glory in the house of God and turn it into a blasphemous idol that's called Jesus, that's called Yahweh, if you want to express your desire to throw down every idol, throw down every fear that would, that would cause you to be like Aaron and just do it because they pressured you to, if you want to say that and declare that in the house of God and say, this is going to be a place where the house of God, in all of its detail, in every corner of my life, the word of God is going to have its say and life is going to come forth from it. So if you want to, if you want to declare that, it's not really an act of repentance. This is just an act of a proclamation, declaring it to yourself, declaring it to your brothers and sisters, and declaring it to God and declaring it to the, the satanic powers. That you are going to be a minister in the house of the Lord. That you are going to let yourself be built together into a royal priesthood. I just want to spend some time meditating on that, declaring that to God, reaffirming that among ourselves. And if you want to come to the altar, uh, feel free. So let's sing.